So as I just read, this morning we're looking at 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning midway through verse 3 and continuing to the end of verse 13. Verse 1, verse 2, and the beginning of verse 3 are preliminary. They're setting up this little section. But this little section is a self-contained unit in its own. Peter first asserts that scoffers will come. And he goes on and talks about that a little bit. And then he responds to the objection of the scoffers. That's basically what happens in this little unit. So as we work our way from the midpoint of chapter 3 and verse 3, scoffers will come, all the way to the end of 13, new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're going to look at three points as we make our way through this text. The first is the apostles' assertion. The second is the objection of the scoffers. And the third is the apostles' response to the scoffers. So let's jump right in with the first point. The apostle asserts that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This is him basically, he doesn't say that until later. Verse 7, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. But this is what people are scoffing about. And that's implicit from the context of this passage. He's been talking about judgment in chapter 2. And he's writing to the believers saying, I'm reminding you about all these things. The scoffers are going to come and mock these things, but I'm reminding you of these things because the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. He's reminding them of these things. He's reiterating these things. He's impressing these things upon. So this is what's being scoffed at. This statement that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. So let's unpack that, first of all, because we need to understand what's being scoffed at before we can really examine the scoffing itself. And the first thing that we should observe from the text is that this doesn't imply the future non-existence of the earth. This does not imply the future non-existence of the earth. The talk about the world being deluged with water and perishing in verse 6 look at it, is an obvious reference to the flood in Noah's day. It says, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So there was a world which existed and then perished. But it didn't literally perish, did it? Because we live on it. And yet, in another sense, it did perish, didn't it? There's great discontinuity between the pre-flood world and the post-flood world. The people in it perished. The form of the world before the flood and the form of the world after the flood were very different. Obviously, the flood had such a significant effect upon this earth that the apostle can write here that it perished. The earth perished at that time. There was, in a very real sense, a death of the earth 
and a resurrection of the earth at the time of the flood. The earth died and was reborn, as it were. The comparison being drawn in this passage, 2 Peter 3, is between the perishing of the earth by water in Noah's day and the passing away and dissolution of the earth by fire at the return of Christ. And if it wasn't literally annihilated into non-existence in Noah's day, the logic of the argument here that the dissolution and the passing away that's coming is going to be like the perishing that already came, the logic of this passage is that we shouldn't expect the earth to literally disappear into non-existence at the return of Christ. In fact, the idea of the earth being literally annihilated into non-existence runs against other scriptures which teach very much to the contrary. Consider first the very earthy language of the prophets. Let's look for one example at Isaiah 65. 17 to 25. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Obviously, there is figurative language here, because it talks about death in the new heavens and the new earth. The young man's going to die at 100 years old. If someone dies at 100, you'd be like, man, he died too young. A sinner is going to die at 100 years old. It's going to be like, wow. Even even those people who are cursed by God live out 100 years. And yet we know that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that that enemy will be destroyed at the Lord's coming. And so obviously this there's figurative language here in Isaiah 65. Because it's talking about death in the new heavens and the new earth. 
And yet, it would be hard to imagine what this passage could mean if there was no meaningful correspondence between the reality of the new heavens and the new earth and this language in Isaiah 65 which describes it. So if literally everything in this passage is figurative, there is no actual heavens, there is no actual earth, there is no actual Jerusalem, there is no actual infant, there is no actual old man, there is no actual house, no actual vineyard, no actual planting, no actual reaping, no actual labor, no actual wolves, no actual lambs. What are we left with? You understand what I'm saying? There has to be still some correspondence between Isaiah 65 and the new heavens and the new earth. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense at all. This type of prophecy should indicate to us at least, at least that God's people won't be sitting on harps, pardon me, sitting on clouds, playing harps in some sort of ethereal existence for all of eternity. We're not going to be disembodied spirits just hovering around somewhere up there for all of eternity. The way the prophets uniformly describe the eternal state is like this. In eternity, if you read the prophets and you looked at what they say about the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come, you would conclude that there will be human society. You will include that you would conclude that there would be meaningful labor. The language that is often used is crops and livestock, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're all going to be farmers. He's writing to an agrarian society. Rural people for whom crops and livestock are images that will make sense to them. Meaningful labor. This sort of existence that is very much like our existence. And yet all will be wonderfully transformed in ways that are surprising and hard for us to fathom. And I think that the correspondence comes word for word, literally, up until the things that are very hard for us to fathom. Up until the point where there are things that are just too shocking for us and too hard for us to fathom. And there the Lord uses figurative imagery to help us understand what it's going to be like. And so when he talks about crops, he means crops. When he talks about human society, he means human society. But in order to help us grasp how wonderfully things will be transformed, he talks about the young man dying at age 100. He talks about the wolf and the lamb grazing together. Because these help us understand that there will be similarity between now and then, between here and hereafter. But the figurative language helps us understand that things will be radically and wonderfully transformed in the new heavens and in the new earth. I will admit that passages like Isaiah 65 don't make a clear-cut case that this present earth won't be annihilated into non-existence. But I do think that they at least make a clear-cut case that we won't live a disembodied existence in eternity. 
that there will be a earth for us to live on. And that our lives then will be in many ways very much like our lives now, though wonderfully transformed. When we come to the New Testament, however, we do find a firm basis to say that this present earth won't be annihilated into non-existence. Consider, for example, Romans 8, 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I should have started at verse 19, pardon me. Look back a verse. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This passage teaches us that the creation itself has something to look forward to. It longs to be freed from the curse and to exist in a freed manner. It's not only going to be free from something, which annihilation would do. Annihilation would get creation free from the curse, wouldn't it? But it's going to obtain something. Look at verse 21. It will be free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation itself has something to obtain, something to look forward to. And so an implication of Romans chapter 8 is that this earth is not going to be annihilated into non-existence. Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20. He that is Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Pause there. Any limitations on those all things? No. In fact, he goes the extra mile to show us that he literally means everything. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So the physical and the immaterial. Whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He upholds the universe, Hebrews tells us. By the word of his power. So we're talking about immaterial things and material things at this point, right? And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in him, pardon me, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why are we going to read all things differently in verse 20 
than we do in verse 16. The context needs to inform us of what all things means. Sometimes the scripture says all, and it means all kinds of things. Sometimes it means all things within a specific subcategory that's already been introduced to us. But the author has made a point to be comprehensive here. He's literally talking about everything. Everything was created by Christ, for Christ. Christ holds everything together. And Christ is reconciling to himself all things. All things. This passage teaches us that all things belong to Christ. They're an endowment to him from the Father. The logic of this passage is that Christ will not lose or forfeit or abandon that endowment because of sin. He won't lose or forfeit or abandon that endowment because of sin. But he will redeem what belongs to him from its present sinful state. He is going to reconcile to himself all things. In Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Listen, here's the focus. Whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus is going to stay in heaven until it's time to restore all the things spoken by the prophets long ago. So now we circle back around to Isaiah 65 and passages like that. And though in and of themselves they could be read the way that I'm telling you, or some people might read them very figuratively or whatever, when we come to the New Testament and see it explicitly stated... That not only immaterial things, but material things are being redeemed by Christ. And that the end of things is restoration, as opposed to forfeiting or abandonment. Then when we go back and read Isaiah 65 and passages like that, they actually mean what they say. And we have the looking forward to of this broken, sin-cursed world not being forfeited by Christ, not being abandoned by Christ not annihilated into non-existence in order that God might start over completely fresh with something entirely new. But we see that the storyline of Scripture is Jesus restoring all these things. So in view of all this, the first thing we should observe from 2 Peter chapter 3 is that the storing up of the heavens and the earth for fire doesn't imply the future non-existence of the earth any more than the perishing of the earth in Noah's day or no more than the perishing of the earth in Noah's day was literally making the earth into non-existence. He uses the word perishing to describe Noah's flood. He uses the words passing away and dissolving to talk about the fire that's coming, but he compares the two. And he says that this which is coming is going to be like that. And so... It doesn't imply that 
the earth will be non-existent at some point in the future. What does it mean then? It means that God's judgment is coming. As God brought a cataclysmic universal judgment in Noah's day. So thorough that it could be said that the earth perished. Who, who thinks that that's an unfair way to talk about a universal flood in which everybody but those who are in the ark perished? And all the animals but those who are in the ark perished. Who thinks that it's unfair to say that the earth perished? Not me. Something is coming which is going to be like that. As God brought a cataclysmic, universal judgment in Noah's day, so severe, so thorough that it could be said that the earth perished. So, likewise, a cataclysmic, universal judgment is coming. So thorough and so severe that those who pass through that and remain on the other side will be able to look back and say, Wow, the earth passed away. The earth dissolved when Christ Jesus returned and brought fire upon the earth. This judgment will be one from which not only nothing, but no one may escape. As all people everywhere were subject to judgment in Noah's day, including those who were on the ark, so all people everywhere will be subject to judgment at the return of Christ. Though some will remain standing after the judgment at the return of Christ, as some remain standing after the judgment in Noah's day, no one will be exempt from passing through that judgment. No one will be exempt from that cataclysmic universal experience. Noah and his family had to go inside the ark and hear the rain beating down on the roof of the ark. They had to be in the ark as it finally lifted buoyantly off the ground in the floodwaters. They had to be in the ark as no doubt it was tossed to and fro by the currents and the swells. They had to pass through the judgment. And so it will be at the return of Christ. Each and every one of us will have to pass through the judgment. We will have to experience it. No one will be exempt from it. You're not going to wake up one morning and find out that the judgment happened in the night. And thank God you were sleeping and didn't have to be aware of it. All of us will be conscious of the judgment on that day and all of us will have to experience it in some way or another. This is a key part of the Christian message. God's judgment is coming. You see, the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God created a good heavens and earth. He created people upright, able to sin and able not to sin. And Adam sinned. And Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 tell us that when Adam sinned, we sinned in him because he represented us. 
And so we inherited guilt because of Adam's sin, and we inherited corruption because of Adam's sin. And God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And so all of creation fell into a state of misery because of that first sin. And God has judged in some measure his creation already by putting us under a curse, even putting the creation under the curse. But more than that, wrath, further wrath is coming. God will render judgment upon each and every person walking the face of this earth. Jesus talked about hell a lot. So did the apostles. This is not just an Old Testament thing. We live in an age where the gospel is to be proclaimed freely, without reservation, when everybody is invited to receive grace and love from God. And so sometimes people get the impression that Christianity has no judgment. Christianity has grace and love. And Jesus is basically a nice guy who really wants to be with you. But Christianity starts with the fact that the wrath of God is coming on account of the sinfulness of mankind. You are guilty and you are corrupt because of Adam's sin. And then further, you have compounded your guilt and you have deepened your corruption by the choices that you have personally made. You are more guilty and more corrupt than the day you were born. Though the day you were born, you were already guilty and corrupt in Adam. This is what the Bible teaches us. And the wrath of God is coming. It will be cataclysmic. It will be universal. It will be severe. <clears throat> such that we will be able to look back on it from the other side and say that at the time that God's judgment came, the earth passed away and dissolved in fire as the earth perished in Noah's day by water. That's what the apostle is asserting here in 2 Peter chapter 3. So that's our first point. The apostle Peter asserts here that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Take that to heart. Judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. Take that to heart. Reckon with that. The next point that we're looking at this morning, the first point was that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The next point is that there are scoffers who mock this idea. Reasoning that if it hasn't happened by now, it's not going to happen. Look at the text. Isn't that what it says? They will say, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? I hear you, Christians. You keep saying that God's judgment is coming. You keep saying that God's wrath is coming. I hear you. But His wrath hasn't come. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So isn't that their reasoning? If it hasn't happened by now, it's not going to happen. Note first 
the simple fact that this is fallacious reasoning. This is terrible reasoning. Just because the 2020 presidential election hasn't happened in the U.S. yet, it does not stand to reason, therefore, that it will not happen. Just because you haven't grown old yet and your hair hasn't gone gray, it doesn't stand to reason that, therefore, it never will. Just because you haven't died yet, it doesn't stand to reason that, therefore, you never will. So this reasoning here, it hasn't happened yet, therefore it never will, is fallacious reasoning. That is a terrible argument. There is a time appointed for the 2020 presidential elections in the U.S., and until that time comes, it won't happen. But when that time comes, it will happen. There is a time appointed by God for you to die, and until that time comes, you won't die. But when that time comes, you will die. Likewise, there is a time appointed for the return of Christ and this fire to come upon the earth that will cause the earth to pass away and dissolve in a way analogous to its perishing in the days of Noah. Until that time comes, it won't happen. But when that time comes, it will happen. So note first, simply just the fallacious reasoning. Note secondly, that this is what sin does to us and to our reasoning. It causes us, as Romans 1 says, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Sin leads us towards fallacious reasoning. It doesn't do it by rendering us incapable mentally of logic and reason. I'm not saying that Christians are smarter than non-Christians. I'm not saying that we're more intellectually capable than non-Christians. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is this. Sin causes us to make a moral decision to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And if the truth is rational, reasonable, cogent, and so forth, then we are forced in denying the truth to be irrational, unreasonable, incoherent, etc., we become, because of our sin and our desire to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, we become motivated not by truth as we ought to be, but by our sinful desires. Look at verse 3. They scoff. Why? Not because it's irrational. Not because it's unreasonable. Not because it's incoherent to say that Christ is going to return in judgment. Their scoffing isn't motivated by reason. What's their scoffing motivated by? Look at it. Their sinful desires. They don't want a judgment to happen. They don't want Jesus to return with fire, with fury, with wrath. 
They don't want to be held accountable for their sin. And that leads them to draw a conclusion first. It's not going to happen. And then they go back and find reasons to support the conclusion they've already drawn. That's how sinful reasoning works. Not because people aren't smart enough. The unbeliever is just as smart as any of us. Many of them are smarter than many of us. But that's what sin does. It causes you, as Romans 1 says, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It causes you to scoff at that which is perfectly reasonable because you don't like the conclusion. And it causes you then to offer up a fallacious set of reasons for the conclusion that you've drawn. If it hasn't happened yet, it's not going to happen. You see why they arrived at that conclusion? Not by rationality. Not because that's a reasonable conclusion to draw. But because their sinful desires led them there. Sin makes us start with what we want the conclusion to be. And then we rationalize our conclusion. And that leads us, as verse 5 says, look at it, to deliberately overlook facts. They deliberately overlook this fact. This propensity to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This propensity to reason according to what we want to be true. To find reasons to support the conclusions that we hope are true, that we want to be true. This causes us to deliberately overlook facts. There is nothing irrational about Christianity. Sure, it posits a supernatural being and supernatural events. But supernaturalism is eminently more reasonable than naturalism. As many have said before me, if you can accept Genesis 1-1, then everything else in the Bible is very reasonable. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, well then I guess he can break the laws of nature anytime he wants. And feeding the 5,000 or raising people from the dead or making donkeys talk. Yeah, that's, that's, that's small stuff. That's pocket change. Allow me to put a spin on that statement. If you deny Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, then everything else doesn't make sense. Nothing presently in existence has a rational explanation. Think about it. What makes better sense of this world at the root of it, at the bottom of it, than that there is a God who made it? There is nothing irrational about Christianity. But against reason, nevertheless, many will scoff. They scoff at the idea of a coming judgment because their sinful desires don't want a coming judgment. Their desired conclusion drives their reasoning all the way through. This is an important question for you to consider this morning. 
Are you one of the scoffers? Do you believe that there is a coming judgment? Do you believe that there is coming wrath? Do you believe that mankind is guilty before God? Accountable to Him. And that He will render to each what is owed them on account of their sin. Do you believe that this is not a fairy tale? But that there is a risen, resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things spoken of by the prophets. Do you believe that? Or do you scoff? Maybe outwardly you scoff. You mock with your words. Far more are willing to scoff at least in their hearts. They might not be so bold as to say it, but far more scoff in their hearts. It's not really true. I don't have to worry about this stuff. That preacher's all worked up about nothing. Let's just put in our time, go home for our Sunday lunch. Is this you? Do you scoff at this idea? It's interesting how Peter responds to the scoffers, though, here in this chapter. Here in this chapter, he does not make a case for the rationality of Christianity and the rationality of believing in a final judgment. Elsewhere, Peter reasons with us. Here he doesn't. The way that Peter responds to the scoffers in this instance is simply that he gives an explanation for God's delayed judgment. And that brings us to our third point. The first point was that the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The second point was that there are scoffers who mock this idea. The third point is that the apostles' response to scoffers is that the reason for the delay in this coming judgment is that the Lord is patiently delaying his judgment. Giving everyone a chance to repent. That's what's going on right now in this world. The wrath of God hasn't come yet, not because the arm of the Lord is too short, not because he hasn't had time to muster his troops, not because he's tired and needs a little bit more rest, not because he's old and senile and has forgotten. The only reason that the wrath of God has not yet been poured out upon this world is that the Lord is patiently delaying in order that we might have a chance to repent. He's patient towards you, verse 9 tells us. That is the beloved of the Lord mentioned in verse 8. Those loved with an everlasting love. The Lord is patient on account of His beloved. He's waiting until each and every one comes. The New King James says He's patient towards us. If that's the sense of it, it would be the human race. I think that's a fair idea too. Everyone benefits from the patience of the Lord. Everybody has this chance here 
to repent. Repentance is the only way to make it through this coming judgment. Just as the only way through the judgment in Noah's day was to renounce your former life. Everything that was to be judged, you had to let it go. Turn away from it. Get in the ark. Be prepared to start a new life with God's people in the ark and afterwards in a new heavens and a new earth. So it is in this day with the impending judgment bearing down on us, the only way to make it through is to renounce your former life. All that which is to be judged. Turn away from it. And be prepared to start a new life together with God's people inside the ark of our salvation. Christ Jesus, that provision that God has made for us, not to be swept away in the flood of his wrath, but to survive, to make it through. God holds Christ Jesus out to this world as he held out the ark to the world in Noah's day. Just as the only way to survive the judgment then was to get in the ark, make use of God's provision. So in this day, that's the only way to survive the judgment. Get in the ark. Trust in Christ Jesus. Renounce that former life. You had to leave your town You had to leave your family, you had to leave your friends and get in the ark. Evidently it was hard to do because no one did it but Noah and his family. But that's the call of Christ. Whatever you got to leave behind, leave behind and get in the ark. Come to Jesus. Be prepared to start a new life with God's people in and through Christ Jesus and be ready after the flood of God's judgment to spend eternity with those people with God himself in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells God has been tremendously patient thus far with us all our lives continue as they have from our birth the world continues as it has from its beginning But there is a day appointed for judgment. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What sort of people ought you to be? The author rhetorically asks in verse 11. He answers essentially those who repent. Those who lead lives of holiness and godliness. In other words, those who have renounced those things on account of which the judgment of God is coming. Those who are on the ark, embracing the new life and anticipating a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Though the judgment is coming, God has provided a way out and invites all people to embrace it. Preachers herald 
this way as Noah heralded back in the day. First Peter tells us. Heed the invitation. Turn away from those things on account of which the wrath of God is coming. Turn away from your sin. Embrace Christ Jesus and his work of reconciliation. Adam disobeyed on behalf of all men. Christ Jesus obeyed on behalf of those whom he represents. The ground was cursed on account of Adam, but it shall be blessed on account of Jesus Christ. Jesus will come down to strike down the wicked and bring the fury of his wrath upon the unrepentant. But until that day, the invitation stands to embrace his reconciling work by renouncing your sin, putting your faith in Jesus, and finding in him the forgiveness of your sins, and embracing the hope of the restoration of all things. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ.